Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller, and thank you for listening and joining us today. Today, we have an interview with Dr. Abraham Morgenthaler. He is a leading figure in the field of testosterone therapy, prostate cancer, and male sexuality. Some of you may remember that we had Dr. Morgenthaler on once before, and so many of you contacted me and asked that he come back, that we have him with us again today. So stay tuned for this educational and interesting interview, which we will resume in a couple of minutes. But first, our news and notes in psychology and medicine. I'm going to read something to you that came across the wire just recently that I believe is of importance to all of us. Corvallis, Oregon. In November of 1992, more than 1,500 scientists put their signatures on an extraordinary document titled World Scientists Warning to Humanity. They implored global leaders to save the planet from environmental disaster. Now, 25 years later, more than 15,000 scientists have signed an updated version of that historic plea saying time is running out. Lead author Dr. William Ripple, a distinguished professor of ecology at Oregon State University, said he was astounded by the level of support he and his seven co-authors received for their manuscript. I initially sent it out to 40 of my colleagues, he recalled. After 24 hours, there were 600 scientists who signed it. Within two days, there were 1,200. So many people were signing that our website crashed a couple of times. By the time the paper was ready for publication, the authors had received the endorsement of 15,364 fellow scientists from 184 countries. The original warning published by the Union of Concerned Scientists was sort of an environmental distress signal that began with this chilling statement, human beings and the natural world are on a collision course. It went on to lay out a number of alarming trends, including a growing hole in the atmosphere ozone layer, depletion and pollution of freshwater resources, overfishing in the ocean, widespread deforestation, crashing wildlife populations, increasing greenhouse gas emissions, rising global temperatures, and soaring human population levels. A great change in our stewardship of the earth and the life on it is required, the authors declared, if vast human misery is to be avoided and our global home on this planet is not to be irretrievably mutilated. Wow. Charts included with the paper chronicle a number of other disturbing developments over the past quarter century, including 
a 28.9% reduction in the abundance of all vertebrate wildlife, a 62.1% increase in carbon dioxide emissions, a 167% increase in global average annual temperature change, and a 35.5% rise in the global population, an increase of of 2 billion people. Wow. Folks, this is to be taken very seriously. This is a warning by over 15,000 scientists, and they are really calling for us to make changes. They're asking people to voluntarily have fewer children. They're asking people to voluntarily consume fewer resources. They're asking people to make changes in their use of fossil fuel, and they're eating of meat. They're saying that humanity is now being given a second notice as illustrated by these alarming trends. Quote, we are jeopardizing our future by not reining in our intense but geographically and demographically uneven material consumption and by not perceiving continued rapid population growth as a primary driver behind many ecological and even societal threats. I'm sure we're going to be discussing this again in the future. I hope you all will take this very seriously, and we will again discuss it in time coming. But now to our interview with Dr. Abraham Morgenthaler. In 1999, Dr. Morgenthaler founded Men's Health Boston, the first men's health center in the United States focusing on sexual, reproductive, and hormonal health for men. He is credited with shattering the decades-old belief established by Nobel Prize winner Charles Huggins that testosterone therapy is risky for men with prostate cancer. He pioneered the modern use of testosterone in men. More recently, he has been a leading scientific figure in the global discussion regarding cardiovascular risks of testosterone therapy. Dr. Morgenthaler has published over 130 scientific articles, including leading medical journals such as the New England Journal of Medicine, the Lancet, the Journal of the American Medical Association and Cancer. In addition, he has written The Male Body. He has written The Viagra Myth. He wrote a book called Testosterone for Life. Another book is called Why Men Fake It. And his most recent book, The Truth About Men and Sex. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Dr. Morgenthaler. Are you there? Thank you very much. Yes, great to be with you. I can't hear him, Michael. Hello. Are you there? Hello. I am. Hello. One second. We're making a change here, and we'll see what we can do. Hello, hello. Uh, stay with us. We're having a technical problem, and uh, we'll see what we can do about it. All right. Can you hear me? 
hear you. Okay, bear, just bear with me for a moment here, and uh, we'll see what we can do to rectify this situation. Well, okay, I think we have it somewhat fixed. Are you able to hear me now? I hear you very well. Okay, please excuse these technical issues that we have to deal with from time to time in the media. Um, today, I want to continue our interview last time uh, and review a little bit of what we said before. But I think what we want to do is really launch right into the heart of the matter having to do with, uh, with male sexuality, and that, of course, is the penis. So let's discuss the penis, what it is, how it works, what its function is. Take it from the top, please. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you for that very lovely uh, introduction, and it's great to be with you today. Um, you know, certainly men are, I like to say that men are very uh, penocentric, if we can use uh, such a term. Mm -hmm. And, um, you, know, it's, uh, you know, it's a tough time for men uh, now and difficult to be talking about male sexuality in light of all the uh, excesses and, um, you know, frankly, bad behavior and in some cases criminal behavior that's coming to light recently around uh, sexual assault and sexual indecency and you know, and, and I, I just want to point out before we get started that, that all of those um, issues and accusations and, and events that happened are, are absolutely horrific, and there's no excuse for it. At the same time, I think it would be absolutely wrong to paintbrush the entire male gender because of um, really bad behavior by uh, some individuals who have abused their positions of power. And, and in fact, male sexuality is a beautiful thing. It is a critical biological function without which we would have no human beings. And just as female sexuality, I think, is something that we, we properly regard as uh, key to the individual and self-expression, um, the same is true for men and sexuality. And I, I think it's important to begin... Uh, with with those comments. Um, having said that, um, what is the penis? Well, the, the penis is the structure that that allows uh, human sex to take place, at least between men and women. And the original um, purpose of sex is reproductive. Um, but uh, you know, humans are so smart that alone really amongst the animal animals in the animal kingdom is we figured out a way uh, to disconnect sex from reproduction through contraception and uh, understanding the female menstrual cycle and fertility. So 99% of human couplings, sexual couplings, uh, do not result or not intended even for um, for reproduction. Uh, they're really for, for intercourse, for sex, and for the ver variations thereof. And the penis is central to that. 99% of sexual intercourse, also referred to as copulation, 
you're saying, is not for reproductive purposes. Therefore, that 99% is for other purposes, such as pleasure. Exactly right. So sex is a big part of who we are. And... um, and although there are, it's not necessary for straight couples where the penis uh, goes inside, the design of the penis, again, is a reproductive one. It's designed to achieve enough firmness or rigidity so that it can uh, go inside the vagina and deposit, again, in terms of reproductive stuff, deposit the semen, which is the fluid containing the sperm, right close to the opening of the uterus, which is called the cervix. And if you think of it, this is, it's not just alone with humans, right? But this is what mammalian sex is, and actually vertebrates uh, or animals with spines, vertebrates uh, below the mammals. And if you think of fish, you know, they have a very inefficient system where the female lays her eggs in the water in the stream or whatever, and the male comes along and deposits the sperm on top of that in hopes that the water doesn't or the, the current doesn't wash it all away. Very mm-hmm. inefficient. So uh, sex, is, as the vertebrates, uh, higher vertebrates have figured out, is more efficient uh, if the penis goes inside. And, you know, it's a it's an interesting thing. If we can take a step back from our own normal sort of human thoughts about sexuality, it's a pretty amazing uh, system where, you know, there's a delay between the time of intercourse and um, when a baby emerges. And, um, you know, most animals, let's talk non-humans, most animals that are having sex, I mean, they all have sex. Otherwise, there'd be no salmon, there'd be no reindeer, there'd be no, <laughs> no, nothing. no dogs or cats or anything. There'd be no nothing. Right. And so, you know, the, what, what really forms the drive for all that is the sex drive or libido. And it's actually designed towards intercourse. It's like, you know, the, if, when a man's in throes of lust or a, or a male dog, he's not thinking, I want a baby right now. That's not what lust is. Lust is about that sexual release and, and the having of it. And um, so that's really where the emphasis has been. And once we can disconnect fertility from sexuality, then we have this whole world that all humans experience in one way or another that has to do with our sexuality, separate separate from reproduction. Now, is that separation from reproduction, is that what we call libido? So libido is really, it's sort of a fancy term, which really has to do with the hunger for sex. And I think, I like the term hunger, because it's a true drive. So sometimes a man comes in the office, and I'm a urologist, I, I, I specialize in sexual matters and reproductive matters for men, and do a lot of testosterone along the way with that. But, you know, sometimes the guy will come in and his erection isn't working well, and we ask a standard question, which is, how's your sex drive or your interest in having sex. And the guy will often say, well, of course I want to have sex. I love my wife. She's beautiful. I miss it. But that's not the same as libido. That's sort of like a conscious thinking. That's the higher aspects of the brain. Yes. Saying that it would be good for us if we had sex or yes. she might be happier or we might enjoy something. But libido is, I like to say, is the grrr. It's the, it's the, it's the deep primal urge. And it comes from the deep part of our brain. Um, often called the rep- the reptilian part of our brain, which is uh, conserved with reptiles and, and birds and mammals. And it's the part that really propels or impels us to actually engage in sexual activity. 
So there, we're talking about a connection between the brain and the penis, aren't we? Absolutely. Yes, because a patient came to me recently, and he said that he had 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 a fine sex life with his wife, and he felt good as a person and everything, etc., and then the marriage disintegrated, and they got divorced, and he said for an entire year, he felt like his penis was almost, or and his libido, both, were non-existent. And he wondered, right. how does this happen, that everything was working well for such a long period of time, and then suddenly, no drive and no penis? What can you tell us about that, please? So drive is, is a, uh, influenced by a number of things. Um, the... The three issues that normally come up when a man has low sex drive or low libido is there's some psychological reasons. So if a man is stressed or depressed or having relationship issues, often the drive is diminished and in some cases goes away completely. Hormones are critical um, to specifically testosterone for a man's sex drive, and it's uh, important for women and their sex drives as well. And then uh, a third common offender in terms of for men who have low sex drive is medications. So there's a number of medications that can really affect uh, lower sex drive. And uh, the most uh, common ones that cause that are the uh, antidepressants uh, in a class called SSRIs, the, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And they're pills that everybody's heard of, you know, like um, Zoloft or... Prozac or things like that. And it's it's an unintended side effect, but that certainly is something that can do it. And there's some other medications that do that also. So can a man have a low sex drive, but a penis that functions properly and spontaneously erects? And does that then create a sex drive? Or what's the relationship between the sex drive and the penile functioning itself. Well, it's complicated, isn't it? So, you know, I, I really do believe that there's a, a mind-body connection. And for men, one of the places where that, uh, where that has a nexus often is really the penis. So if a man is, is worried about sex or worried about his health or dealing with relationship issues or worried about a child or something like that, um, the penis may not respond, even though all his normal things that turn him on, you know, his, his partner looks good, smells good, like it's all the, it's their, it's their Saturday night or whenever they tend to do it. Everything may be just the same as always, but if the brain is somehow not in the right receptive place, then it may not work. And the, and the flip side of that is that when men begin having or do uh, or start having erection problems for, let's say, a physical problem, maybe it's, you know, it just isn't working properly because of blood flow or whatever, then for many men, their drive actually drops too, almost as if the brain is protecting itself from entering into a situation that the men find awkward or, um, or embarrassing. You have uh, stated in print that uh, erectile function, uh, dysfunction affects as much as 50% of the men between the ages of 40 and 70. Is that correct? 
Yeah, so that was a shocking, that, that data came from the Massachusetts male aging study. I think the year was 1994. Um, and this was pre-Viagra. Uh, Viagra came out in 1998. And people didn't talk much about sex back then. And um, so we didn't know that much. I mean, there had been some surveys like Kinsey and others, uh, but we didn't know how prevalent it was for men to have erection problems. And the Massachusetts Male Aging Study looked at uh, a couple of thousand men, as I recall, and they were generally healthy, and they were between the ages of 40 and 70, and they collected all sorts of information, blood tests, etc. And they asked about sexual function, which was a little risque at the time. And 52% of those men, generally pretty healthy, between the ages of 40 and 70, reported some degree of erectile dysfunction. Now, for some of them, it was mild. For others, it was moderate. For some, it was severe, and um, you know, which corresponds to the erection not being as hard. Moderate is that there's often difficulty with having sex, but sometimes it works, and the severe means it really never works. Um, but that's a, that's a big number. Are you able to tell, doctor, to what extent that dysfunction in this 50% of these men between 40 and 70, to what extent that dysfunction is physiological, having to do with something inside their penis or their body, and to what extent it's psychological? Yeah, and that's a, a very important point. And our beliefs around this have changed considerably over the last 20, 30 years. Um, so not from that study, but from other studies where they've looked at men who just show up at the doctor's office concerned about erectile dysfunction. The numbers are that about 80% of men will have a physical basis for it if it's lasted more than uh, a month or two. And 20% is what we call psychogenic or psychological, which doesn't, you know, I always caution when I talk to my patients about it, it doesn't mean you've you know, got some strange neurosis or something. Psycho psychological usually just means that the men are anxious. So, um, you know, a typical story is a young man, healthy, dating a woman. Um, you know, they do some kissing or, or some other, you know, sort of foreplay-type activities. And then one day they decide to have sex, and the guy says to me, Doctor, so this was our night. We were planning it. And uh, we went to her place, and we got undressed, and we got in bed, and nothing happened, and it was the most embarrassing, you know, night of my life. And when you talk to those men, you say, as I do, and you might ask, you know, what else did you notice was going on with your body? And the guy will often say, well, I was nervous, my heart was racing, my palms were sweaty. And what they're having is a, I wouldn't call it a full-fledged panic attack, but they're having a, they're nervous. And um, in medical terms, what it is is a sympathetic discharge. So the sympathetic system is often what we call the fight-or-flight response. Adrenaline gets released. And if you think of the caveman fighting the saber-toothed tiger, you know, there was fight-or-flight. He either has to fight it or, or run away. There's nothing that would help him if he had a great erection at that time. <laughs> so the sympathetic system makes the blood vessels in the penis constrict so that uh, you don't get an erection. And um, it's not going to work in those cases. So that's on the psychological side. Now please inform us about the physiological side. What's going on with these 50% of the men who are having erectile dysfunction? What's going on? And what can be done about it? 
So the causes are several. They can be vascular, which both has an arterial part, which the arteries fill up the penis. There's a venous side where the blood that enters the penis has to be trapped within it. And if that trapping isn't good, then the penis will soften like a, uh, like a hole in a tire and the air seeps out. The hormones have to be right, so mainly testosterone for men. The nerves have to be there. That's like the electrical wiring from the brain, which is turned on to the penis. And then finally, there's the psychological piece, which is that the brain itself has to be in a proper uh, place for all this to happen and willing and able. If we look at the like, you know, the, the most common causes of all this, at the top is really vascular and hormonal. So many men who have erectile dysfunction will have small blood vessel disease in the penis. Most commonly, it's not the arteries. It's not that they can't fill up the penis. It's actually that they can't hold on to the blood in the penis. And we call that because the veins are supposed to trap the blood um, or close off. We use the term occlusion. We call this veno-occlusive dysfunction veno-occlusive dysfunction, or in layman's terms, we call it a venous leak. The blood gets into the penis and it leaves before uh, it should. And what some of the men will notice early on with this is that they can get hard, but they can't maintain the erection. Now, in household plumbing, there is a device that's put into the plumbing called a check valve, and that valve allows water to go into the home but it stops water from going back out of the home into the place from where it came. And this is important for health because we don't want things from people's homes going back into the water system. Does the penis have a similar kind of check valve that stops the blood from going back out? Well, I I think that's another way of describing it. But in essence, the answer is yes. So the blood is supposed to be trapped, and that's turned on by, by the man being aroused, either, you know, in his brain or by physical touch stimulation. Okay. So then you mentioned, uh, you know, several ways that uh, this situation can be improved, and I think that's a a nice way we can segue into your work with testosterone because please, uh, you know, tell us now about the relationship between penile functioning and testosterone. So testosterone is a... um, you know, everybody thinks they know something about it. We always hear it. We sort of think of it as the male hormone, but it's actually present in men and women, although much higher concentrations in men. And it plays a number of really important roles, including sexual, but beyond sex too. It affects muscle and fat, mood, and bones, and, and uh, a number of things. But around sex, what's important is that it has actions both in the brain and the part of the brain that uh, controls sexual desire and sexual function. And it also has actions directly on the structures of the penis. And um, within the penis, um, when the blood goes in, um, into the penis to fill it up, uh, some of that is under the control of testosterone. And there are smooth muscle fibers within the penis that help to control that outflow of blood that we talked about uh, in in the the check valve, if you will, that you suggested. And testosterone is involved in that, too. There's some nice work out of uh, Germany 
where they took uh, this uh, investigator took men who had poor erections, and they had what's called that penis leak, where the the blood would leave too soon. And they also had low levels of testosterone. And when he treated them with testosterone, he repeated the test three months later. And uh, and the test which had originally shown that the, the blood was leaving the penis too soon was now perfect, was fixed. And they, those men had improved directions, and their check valve was working better. Now, in your work, you've stated that uh, about one-third of men over 45 years have low testosterone levels. When we put that data together with the 50% of men over the age of 40 or 40 to 70 have an erectile dysfunction, it would appear that it's the low testosterone that's a major contributing factor to a, a, a high percentage of these men having difficulties. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I think that that's a fair statement, although, you know, it's... Um you know, there's there's a number of factors that go into the quality of an erection. And so testosterone is one of those factors, but it's not usually sort of all or, or nothing. And even men who have low levels of testosterone, it's not like they have zero. So, you know, there's sort of a graded uh, response in there. But, you know, to flip it around, if you take men who have erection problems and they also have low testosterone and we treat them, with testosterone, so their hormones are now, you know, optimal. Um, erections improve in, in studies of groups of men, and some men, quite a few men, may be improved to the point where they feel like they're normal again. But there's an, enough men who also have vascular causes for their erection problems. They may, even if they improve some, it still may not be firm enough for them to have sex the way they'd like to. So when we treat men with testosterone, if they have ED or, or you know, which I hope we can use that term for erect shorthand for erectile dysfunction. Yes. Um, when we use when we when we offer testosterone to men, they say, "What can I expect?" We say, "We certainly hope that your erections will be improved, but we don't know if they'll be improved all the way, so that you're you'll be happy." And I'd say that about a third of the men in my practice who we treat with testosterone don't need any more help, like with pills or other treatments for their erections. But about two-thirds still will will either need or would prefer to have additional treatments um, so that their erections are better. And what are some of the additional treatments in addition to uh, testosterone that are available for men? So the most common are the pills that everybody's heard of, and, you know, uh, Viagra is the, the, was the first, Cialis uh, and uh, Levitra came out afterwards, and those are still really the, you know, the first-line treatment. Cialis is a cool medicine because it's now approved by the FDA for daily use at a low dose. Uh, it has a long enough half-life, um, which means that it's metabolized uh, relatively slowly in the body, so there's some left over the next day. So there's a, it's a long enough half-life so that you can take a daily pill at low dose, and it builds up to a, a, a good level uh, without a lot of the side effects. A lot of the side effects come from um, having a high dose all of a sudden hit you. And so you can get a daily pill of this, and basically the guy's all set. One of the biggest problems we have or one of the big complaints with the pills for men 
is that even when they work great, the men still feel like they're, um, to use an older term, impotent. Impotent used to be the word we used exclusively before we sort of decided it was too loaded a term. It also means powerless, right? Weak and effective. So at some point we became more politically correct and we basically used a term that makes it sound like the erections aren't working, just like it's, you know, any other part of the body that's not working. Except the... In, in England, they still use the, the term impotence, and in many ways it may not be a bad term because men with erection problems do feel impotent in many ways. So, um, well, that was a good story. Now I lost my train Well, you were saying that the <laughs> testosterone, it, it doesn't, uh, I mean, the excuse me, the, the Viagra and the Cialis are not doing the job in a certain way with regard to... Oh, I know to- what I was I know what I was saying. So that the, so that even when the pills, when you take them uh, just before sex, even if they work great, the men don't feel like their problem is cured. They just feel like they're managing it. It's not to say that they're not happy with the results. Of course they are. They're able to have sex again. But what's interesting is that when people take a daily pill, they often and, and then things are better, they don't really think of it as managing their problem anymore. They think they're okay. You know, I have men who come in, and um, and we ask them what their medical problems are, and they may say whatever, but then they may not mention high blood pressure or hypertension. And then we see that they're on medication that's designed for high blood pressure. And we ask them about it. Well, you're on this medicine, which is for high blood pressure. They say, oh, yeah, I used to have it, but I don't anymore. Well, in fact, they do. Even if their blood pressure is good, it's now just being managed or controlled by the medication. And if they stopped their medication, it would come back. It's not like they're cured. But the psychology of that is fascinating, right? So that men don't feel like they've got that problem because they're all set. And the same is true around erectile dysfunction. If they don't have to do anything special around sex, like take a pill an hour before or make sure it's on an empty stomach, then it's a whole different experience. And one of the issues, we were talking about testosterone a moment ago, you know, one of the one of the issues that comes up for doctors often is if a guy comes in and says, I've got, you know, ED or my, my erection isn't working, and he has low testosterone, and it's the first time the doctor's seeing him, they have to make a decision between do I offer him one of the pills, like Viagra Cialis, first, or do I give testosterone first? And my practice in general is to normalize the hormones because if that works, it's like a home run, and then the guy doesn't need to do anything special before sex, and he feels like he's fine. He feels like he's normal again. So the testosterone serves one function. The Viagra and the Cialis and those medications serve another function. And now I'm hearing about another approach, which has to do with increasing the vascularization. And that's what's referred to as the uh, low-intensity acoustic wave uh, treatment. What can you tell us about that treatment? Right. So let me just finish with one thought, and I'll address that in a second. So it's important for people, your listeners, to know that the pills are great, but they don't work in everybody. As a matter of fact, they only work in about two-thirds of men who have erection problems. Okay. Which means that there is a lot of men, a third of men, for whom the pills aren't adequate. And we do have other treatments for them. One that's sort of on the cusp here. Uh, is the shockwave treatment that you just asked about. But our standard treatment for these other men are three other things. 
the most common, believe it or not, are the are injections. Men learn to inject with a tiny needle some medicine in the side of their penis. It tells the blood it's a it's a better uh, signal than the pills. And a lot of those men are then able to have a great erection from the medicine, and that erection often lasts an hour, sometimes two hours. Are you referring uh, here to something called Cabajet or Trimix? Yeah, so there's a number of different names and a couple of different compounds that we use for this. Caverject and Edex are brand names of a medication called Alprostadil. And then sometimes we will compound or have the compounding pharmacies put together for us uh, two or three medicines, which we call Bimex for two or Trimex for three. And the other agents in addition to Alprostadil are papaverin and fentolamine. These are what we call off-label uses for these because they weren't FDA approved for this, but the, both of those medicines have been around uh, for decades. And they're really standard of care for doctors, and we've been using them now for about 30 years. Mm -hmm. so, so those are effective, but not everybody wants to give themselves an injection. And then the other standard treatment is something called a vacuum erection device. It's a non-invasive treatment. It's a little plastic cylinder that goes over the man's penis. There's a little pump that sucks out some of the air. Blood runs into the penis then um, and fills it up, and it gets pretty firm. And then a band, like a basically a fancy rubber band, goes on the base of the penis and holds the blood in, trapping it there. And then the man has sex with that band on his penis and, and the penis firm. So it's non-invasive. For some people, it's more cumbersome and you know feels mechanical, but they certainly do work. And then the last treatment, which is like a little secret, but but we do a lot of them, is called the penile prosthesis or an implant. And it's two cylinders that go inside the two normal cylinders of the penis where erections take place. And they're like they're like long, thin balloons, and they're filled with water, saline. And there's a pump that sits in the scrotum like a third testicle, a third ball. When the man wants to have sex, he finds that pump. He gives it a few squeezes. Fluid runs into those cylinders that are in the normal chambers of the penis. And the penis stands up and looks for all the world like a normal erection. Everything's on the inside. There's nothing that's visible to the outside. And then when he's finished with sex, there's another, depending on the model, he, can, he then deflates it and it softens and it hangs down. Remarkable. So those have been around since the 1970s, and they work very well. And but yes, it's surgery. We have risks of infection, and and um, the devices don't last forever. On average, they last about 10 years. But that really is uh, sort of the most, uh, it's the best fix, if you will. And those guys go on and are generally very, very happy. So that's been the lay of the land for a, a long time. And those are our general treatments. The two new kids on the block, if you will, are uh, one is called shockwave therapy for the penis, uh, similar but modified from the shockwaves that we use to treat kidney stones, and in some cases orthopedic issues like heel spurs. And the other is something called PRP, which stands for platelet-rich plasma, which... Um, and let me just talk about that one first, if I could. So PRP is now used in, um, in a couple of medical conditions. The orthopedic, what it is, 
is we draw blood from from the person and we centrifuge it to get rid of the red blood cells. We get rid of the portion that's also got most of the white blood cells and what we're left with is a some fluid that is enriched with platelets. We normally think of platelets as being the clotting system um, uh, of the body, uh, but they're chock full of growth factors. And so how this is used is that we process the person's blood. Um, we add some calcium to it and an anticoagulant, and then it gets injected into different parts of the body wherever uh, there's a, a, a need. So the orthopedists have been doing this with nice evidence from controlled studies for things like tennis elbow and some other orthopedic problems uh, with good results. The dermatologists and the hair people have started injecting this into the scalp um, for hair regrowth, especially for male pattern uh, baldness or for thinning hair for women. And then um, the urologists have started, and other doctors have started using it for men with erection problems uh, beginning a few years ago. It's one of these things where we don't have the kind of data yet from studies for the penis that we'd like, and so I can't tell you that this it works, you know, with the kind of proof that we like. We do offer it in our practice, and we have, it worked, seems to work in some men very, very well, and in other men don't get any response at all. But, you know, I, I would emphasize that it's new, and uh, I'd consider it unproven. We tell our patients that. Um, but, you know, some men want some extra oomph, and maybe the pills aren't working well enough for them, and they're not interested in anything else. And so I don't think it's unreasonable. I think on the whole it's pretty safe. That was my next so, question. Any negative effects from the PRP? Yeah, and, and so not so far, and, and of course it makes sense. It's we're really taking the person's blood and, and just using it to in a in a somewhat processed form uh, back into the person's own body. So it's hard to imagine why that would cause any any real uh, trouble. So you did so, men, you did mention adding an anticoagulant and calcium to the uh, fluid before reinjecting. Yes, so that's so that's true. But you know, calcium's throughout our body, and um, and uh, and it gets diluted very quickly. And and the anticoagulant is just a, a minor thing that's very safe and and used, you know, throughout medicine for for one reason or another. Okay. So so, so I you know I think that that's the very the jury is still out. But I don't think it's some people are calling this you know are up in arms and they think this is snake oil and. You know, sometimes you have to try stuff before you find out whether it really works or not. So I, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, and, you know, we've had men who say they have more sensitivity with it, um, and, and some men where their erections are clearly improved, clearly. Okay. So, so that's, you know, I'd put that in the category of anecdotal, mm -hmm. <laughs> anecdotal experience. The other one that's out there um, with, uh, I think, more substantially more evidence now is what's called shockwave treatment for the penis. And this is taken on outside the U.S., in Europe, South America. And there's actually uh, quite a number of studies that show that this works. And so what happens is that um, the penis, there are a couple of different devices. I think they still have to work out the optimal 
power and amplitude and wattage that these shocks happen. Um, and basically, it's the penis gets these pulses. And it actually creates a small amount of injury to the tissue, which then heals by the technical term is neovascularization. Neo means new, and vascularization means basically it's getting new blood vessels in there. And um, I have quite a few colleagues from around uh, the world and from clinical trials in the U.S. who report very nice results with this. I don't think it's magic. I don't think it's amazing, but I think that there can be um, some benefit to it. Important to know that in the United States, there are no FDA-approved devices yet, and anybody that tells you or advertises and says that they have an FDA-approved device is not telling you the truth. There also are some online sales of people trying to take advantage of this using things like acoustic waves, they call it, which is not the same, and none of those things have undergone any kind of study whatsoever, and I, have, I, I sincerely doubt that they do much other than as placebo. The uh, National Institute of Health uh, reports a study they did with the uh, acoustic wave uh, shock treatment where they gave the, uh, they broke the subjects into two groups and they each got the exact same treatment except one of the machines did not send the wave and the other machine did, so half the group, you know, got placebo. And uh, in my read of that, it the protocol was they got two treatments a week for three weeks and then a three-week break and then two treatments a week for three weeks, uh, so that for a total of 12 treatments. And that study, if I read it correctly, reported that two years later, uh, 50% of the men still uh, reported positive results and the other half felt they needed more treatments. Um, but that study seems to have fostered a lot of uh, of, of interest, and I know that there's a uh, there is one company that's uh, I thought they're claiming that they have FDA approval, and that's the Gaines Wave. Are you familiar with that? Well, I've looked it up, and um, and uh, you know I, I don't particularly want to comment on any specific product or company. Fair enough. But here's what. But, here, but here's what I will say, is there are no FDA-approved um, devices yet in the United States. The only way to get treated with shockwave therapy, and, you know, people can play games with words, especially for marketing reasons. Mm-hmm. So, so one can argue that a shockwave is an acoustic wave. That's true in a technical sense. But we don't normally medically call shockwaves acoustic waves. Uh in terms of the treatment we're doing. So if somebody is out there promoting an acoustic wave device, what they're really trying to do, in my opinion, is piggyback onto the positive results that have been seen with shockwave treatments and reported into trying to promote something that sounds similar but is not the same. Okay. So these are the latest and greatest, the PRP and the shockwave. We also have the testosterone treatment. Uh... And then you mentioned three other, the injections, the vacuum device, and the implant. By the way, I've, I've interviewed people that have used these various methods, uh, and they all pr- pretty much validate everything you're saying. 
the men that have, I've interviewed that have done the uh, implants seem, you know, very happy with them. Though one of them had it had it done years ago, and he said there was difficulty with the actual surgery, but uh, the device itself worked very well. And that, of course, is between him and the particular person who did the surgery. Um, coming back to testosterone, uh, we have a lot of questions about that because you were the one who really brought to uh, to the world uh, the fact that the testosterone is safe, uh, particularly with regard to uh, prostate cancer. And maybe you want to comment a little bit about that because we have some time left because I know that uh, one of the things that came up during your last interview was people asking questions once again, of course, between the relationship between testosterone and prostate cancer. Right. Well, thank you. Thank you for that question. So testosterone has been the focus of much of my research over, believe it or not, 40 years. Um, I started working with testosterone when I was an undergraduate at Harvard, working with lizards and, and their sexual behavior and manipulating their testosterone. And the males who had testosterone um, were very sexually active, and if we re removed their testicles, which was the source of their testosterone, you put them in a cage with a female, and they didn't do anything at all. Like, they didn't care. And then my project was to actually put testosterone in the portions of the brain that were involved with sexuality. And even though they had no detectable testosterone in their bloodstream, just testosterone in special parts of their brain, those males then started doing all their normal sexual behavior with the females. So that was fascinating to me. And that was in the 1970s. My first publication was 1978. And I recently wrote a 40-year perspective then in the journal called Urology on testosterone. When I came out of my training as a urologist in 1988, you know, everybody was taught, medical students, residents, that testosterone for prostate cancer was like pouring gasoline on a fire. And, um, and so in six years of training, I never treated a single person with testosterone. We thought we were going to give all these men prostate cancer. It didn't matter that they had sexual issues that might respond to it. And when I came out of my training, we didn't have the pills like Viagra and Cialis for men with, with erectile dysfunction. We didn't have much to offer them, really. Um, injections were sort of new but sounded uh, scary to people. And not everybody was ready for surgery. So because of my experience with lizards, I just started checking testosterone levels in men and was surprised at how often it was low. You know, when I started treating men with testosterone, they responded beautifully. I mean, these men, these men said, my sex drive is better, my erections are better, my orgasm is more intense. And they described these benefits that were went beyond sex, you know, in terms of mood. My wife thinks I'm a nicer person. I have more patience for my children. Uh, my workouts are better. I have more energy. Really remarkable. But the fear still, and I had it, was that testosterone was going to make some of these men get prostate cancer. So the long and short of it, I know our time is, is short, is that we've done many studies with this over the years. And, and the story that got us all scared was just one that was a little bit too simple. And that was we learned that high levels of testosterone were bad and low testosterone levels were good in terms of prostate cancer. But the truth of the matter is is that 
we use up all the testosterone that we need for the prostate at very, very low concentrations. And most everybody walking around men, even if they have low levels of testosterone, whatever effect testosterone may have on the prostate is already complete. And adding more doesn't seem to change anything. And that's called the saturation model. If you think of a sponge and you wet it, and you put it on a scale when it's completely soaked, you know, it has a certain amount of water it can hold. And if you add more water to that sponge, it can't hold anymore. The, the weight will actually, of that sponge will never go up. It's, it's done. It's saturated. And that's essentially how testosterone works with the prostate. There are these receptors called the androgen receptors, and we only have so many copies of these in each cell. And once they're all filled with testosterone, you can't fill them any more than that. And that happens at a pretty low concentration, somewhere around 250 nanograms per deciliter. Normal testosterone for men is usually around 500 to 1,000. Some people might include men with 400s, but, but so 250 is pretty low. And um, we now, the story has changed so much uh, that in our practice here at Men's Health Boston, and uh, for your listeners, the website is www.menshealthboston.com. Um, we now treat a lot of men who have already had prostate cancer, some men who are being watched for prostate cancer but haven't been treated yet. And we offer them testosterone if they have the appropriate indications, if they're symptomatic and their levels are low. And we've published now quite a number of papers that these men do just as well as everybody else. And their prostate cancers don't grow any faster than anybody else. And so the story is reversed. Two weeks ago, we just won first prize at the national meeting of the Sexual Medicine Society of North America for our work, our initial work, in a small number of men who had metastatic prostate cancer, far advanced. Those men were very symptomatic from having low levels of testosterone, and we gave it to them, and none of those men ended up with anything sudden or unexpected happening to them, and their quality of life in all of those cases was improved. And some of those men really thanked us because we were the only ones doing this. They really thanked us for giving them the time that they had while they were on testosterone. We have about two minutes left, and I want to ask uh, one more question, which has to do with diagnosis of prostate cancer. Uh, biopsy has been the standard for many years, and now we have something called the three-Tesla MRI, which gives a dis digital image. You, can you give an, uh, an opinion on the uh, 3T uh, MRI as a diagnostic tool for prostate cancer? Yes, certainly. So, um, so until pretty recently... There was no really good way to take images of the prostate that gave any real confidence of whether there was cancer there or not. For many years, people were doing ultrasound and different forms of ultrasound and modifications, but it, it just wasn't very good. And MRI, although it's a very sophisticated uh, technique, also had a lot of what we call false positives and false negatives. Sometimes it made us believe that there was something there when there wasn't, and sometimes it said everything was fine, but there really was cancer. I would say over the last three years, some of the MRI scanners and techniques, including the three Tesla that you've just mentioned, um, 
are greatly improved, and the data the data coming from this now are uh, far far superior. So it's now relatively common for us to get MRIs in men who are suspected of prostate cancer, or even after their biopsy shows they have cancer, just to see what's what. The problem is it's not perfect. And nothing's perfect, of course, but there. But uh, it re, our last uh, uh, annual urology meeting, the AUA, there was some data that about 20 to 25 percent of important prostate cancers were missed by the MRI. So it's, I think, a useful test. I think it's getting better, but I think it's still not perfect. And for men who really have a high PSA or a nodule. I don't think it's, in my practice, I don't recommend it as a substitute for a biopsy. I think we still need to do that. Um, but it certainly adds additional information that may be useful. Thank you very much for this interview. It's been tremendous uh, amount of information, and I appreciate your coming back so much for a second time. Hopefully uh, we'll have you back again maybe in about a year, and you'll update us on men's reproductive health. That'd be, that'd be my pleasure. If I could just put a, a shout-out, though, for our website, if you don't mind. Please so we do. have some of this information. Yeah. So it's www.menshealthboston.com. That's the Men's Health Center that I started. There's also drmorgenthaler.com for uh, my personal uh, website. And you want to check out Dr. Morgenthaler's work and his books. Uh, he's a giant in the field. It's been a privilege having you. And thank you all for listening to today's program of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. We'll be back again in two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Daylight Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth working very hard for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I see trees of green. Wow. I see them blues for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world.